villages that no longer exist. Stories from our trip to the front line. We have visited villages between Izum and Slovyansk that were literally erased from the face of the earth in spring. We have talked to people still living there. Their living conditions are horrible. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Titano Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So our new trip to Kharkiv Oblast, we have returned yesterday and we have been to Kharkiv. We have been also to several villages near Kharkiv, like uh, Korobochkine, and we also visited two villages between Izum and Kharkiv, which is called uh, um, Kamyanka and uh, Dolina. We also visited uh, Slovyansk, right? So the villages between Izum and Slovyansk. And uh, we'll try to tell you what we have seen and uh, to to tell the stories of the people that we have watched and that we have seen. You can also see uh, the videos in the coming days. We will publish the videos both on uh, the Twitter of Ukraine World and on uh, Facebook page of Ukraine Crisis Media Center, right, in English and in French. So let's let's share this, uh, this, uh, these impressions that we have. Uh, first, Kharkiv. How does it look like today? Well, yes, this is not our first trip to Kharkiv, and so we see the city changing through the months. We've been there in June, then in August, right, then in October, and now in December, yes, in early December. And we were quite uh, astonished to see that quite a big number of people are already inside the city. At least we were in a couple of uh, traffic jams, and we had one moment when we had to go to a cemetery. We'll, we'll tell the story. We'll, we were trying to find a tomb of uh, Volodymyr Vakurenka, Ukrainian writer. And we were trying to buy flowers to go there and we had some problems to uh, to, to leave the car uh, close to the market because there are too many cars and too many traffic jams in Kharkiv. And this is something incredible. And also in terms of electricity and the blackouts, uh, our impression is that at least in the city center where we were staying in the, in the Yuri Shevilov apartment, this historical place where uh, people from Kharkiv organized this literary residence. There were no electricity cuts during uh, all through our stay. Uh, we stayed for one night and two, yes, one night and two days. There were no cuts. Two and nights. Two nights. Two nights. Yeah. I, I'm already mixing things. And uh, I was astonished to, to see that uh, in Kharkiv uh, they have quite a, quite a lot of electricity. And uh, at the time when 
our colleagues from Lviv, for example, and from Kiev were suffering from our regular blackouts. And the same story with Slavyansk, by the way. When we've been to Slavyansk, it seems that there is a, a energy station close to the city, which is functioning correctly, despite all the shelling, Russian shelling, uh, which started uh, in February, March. And they still have electricity. And they are in a very good position. So now the situation looks like that during this total war of Russian Federation against Ukraine, in some places close to the front line, like in Kharkiv or Slovansk, even people are writing from Mykolaiv. In Mykolaiv, they are without electricity for eight hours, which is less, in fact, than if you compare it to what people have in Kiev. So, so there is no clear front line in a way. So, and living conditions can be very dramatic very far from the front line as well. And well, this is something yeah. astonishing in this fact. But that's, uh, l- let's admit that uh, th- this is our tiny experience in, in one of the riots of Kharkiv. We don't know what is what is actually happening in other uh, other districts. And um, uh, indeed, if, if, if we're talking about the city, the city when, well, it, it, gets, it gets dark quite early night, right now in Ukraine at 4 p.m. It's already dark. And usually during this time, during winter, we had street lights uh, in the cities. There is no such thing in Kharkiv. There is no such thing uh, no mostly way, in no Kiev. Way. In Kiev, probably you will have the like advertising, the cafes, the, the, the shops which have their autonomous electricity supplies. And the names of the shops will be uh, in light. In Kharkiv, you don't even have this. So you actually go in complete darkness. Uh, in, to, in, to go to Slovyansk, we woke up very early. We woke up at 5 o'clock, and I think we, we left our apartment at 6.30, something like that, and it's just complete darkness. Uh, uh, no, Even no street lights, even no, um, no, no lights in the, in, the, in the buildings. So uh, I, uh, let's also not exaggerate. Let's, let's understand that, for example, at closer to the fa- uh, 6, 5 p.m., well, and up until 7 o'clock in the morning, well, the life is quite interesting in, in these places. Yeah, but my idea was to say that, yes, indeed, so we shouldn't compare these living conditions because anyway, they are changing. So there are some weeks which it, since are going better in Kiev, for example, or in Odessa, we visited one month ago. And Odessa at that time, one month ago, was a, uh, it looks looked like before the war, but now they are also in the darkness. This is not about that. But I, I like to fix an important thing for all of us, for all Ukrainians, that... Uh, there is no clear front line now. It in it in it means that uh, every Ukrainian, regardless which he lives in Lviv or Dnipro or whatever, he suffers from this war. If he's civilian or military, so there is a real impact and real understanding of what's going on. And this is important for 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 the nation in a way for for people because they there is no way to say that this is not about me this war is not about me and my family i'm out of this game i I, i'm not uh, trying to um, i i don't think anything about this this war because you just just have no possibility not to think about it because your human condition your your uh, i don't know your condition is like you you depend on what's going on and you your uh, everyday life depends on what's going on the front line in this uh, understanding this is important that all ukrainians share a part of this common uh, common experience of the war 
Right. So we visited one of the villages, which is called Korobochkina, which was on the real front line for six months. Uh, and let's let's talk about their experience. We we spoke to the mayor of this village, uh, who is called Oleksandr, who was very open to us and uh, really wanted to talk to us. That that's also one thing that we 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 keep on keep on telling to our audience. Ukrainians are extremely open to talk, extremely open to talk to strangers, to journalists. So they they really want to share these stories. Even how, despite the fact that these stories are so much horrible, in majority of cases, people even even initially, if they don't want to speak, they they can speak. So let's let's situate this Karobochkina. So if you go out of Kharkiv, you drive to Chuguyev, Chuguyev direction. So Chuguyev is the first uh, small town, let us say, so close to Kharkiv. You are driving to the east, to the east, and then after Chuguyev, you have a number of villages. Chuguyev was never occupied, and this. Uh, Precisely, village of Korobochkin. We chose it because we just tried to find a village which is not so far away from Kharkiv and which we haven't visited before. We knew that Korobochkin was a village which was never occupied, but it was uh, on the front line in the, what they call gray zone for a couple of months. Let's, let's also say that Chiguiv is a place of birth of Ilya Repin, uh, a painter uh, which is considered worldwide as a Russian painter which is now reclaimed by Ukrainians because he has Ukrainian Cossack roots. Uh, he, I think he is like his ancestors were Cossacks called Ripa or Repa. And, um, and he's, those of you who are interested in Ukrainian culture obviously know this classic painting, Zaporozhian Cossacks are writing a letter to a Turkish sultan. And uh, there are several uh, several. Uh, versions of this painting, and of course, it it became viral also also during these days because there are Ukrainian Cossacks laughing and mocking on the text they're writing, and uh, in the in the image of this uh, Turkish Sultan, Ukrainians are now imagining Mr. Putin. So uh, Chuguiv is a is an important cultural place, and Korobochkino is is a village indeed. That was on the front line for six months. Yes, and this uh, village uh, had, uh, as the mayor Alexander told us, it, it was about 3,000 people before the big invasion. It was uh, quite a rich uh, village, by the way. They had a, a number of uh, number of um, things they were doing. For example, in they were active in agriculture. They also had some cows and some, some animals. Uh, so, and it is also very nicely situated close to big roads coming from Kharkiv to Slovansk, etc. So this is a good placement. So people were uh, were enjoying their life. Uh, some of them were living were, or having family in Chuguiv. So Chuguiv is uh, around 10 kilometers from this Karobochkina. So people were able to travel to in the region and they were quite active. And what happened in the beginning of the war? So late February, they uh, were already... Aware of the fact that Russians were approaching, and one day in the beginning of March, it was second or third of March, six months, six six, six March, months, yes. there were uh, Russian soldiers in black uniform. Alexander was unable to say us which kind of uh, kind of units it was. Were in black uniform. They entered the village, 
And people informed his Alexander, and so he escaped in a way. He took his car, and he was close to a cemetery, just stationary and thinking over what should he do. And then his civilians started to call him one after another, stating that, look, they gathered us, people, somewhere in the center of the village, and they request that you come. If you don't, they promised they will shoot us. So after this kind of call, Alexander... Uh, went to the center of this village and was able to see these Russian soldiers in black uniform by his own eyes. But they told him, look, stand here. There's somebody who will, who, who will talk to you. But in a couple, a couple of minutes, a Russian car was driving in. So all these soldiers went into this car and they drove away saying that we will back tomorrow. But they never did. The thing is that Ukrainian units were and uh, entered the village one of the next days, and Ukrainian units uh, and the Ukrainian army was controlling this uh, Karobochkina from early March until uh, early September, right? So it makes six months. And they never left this village. And then this Alexander was describing this moment as extremely, uh, he was really happy to see Ukrainians because he knew that he was busy. By the way, he was busy by placing all these Ukrainian soldiers already inside the village. And he knew that they will be doing everything possible to keep to keep the village under Ukrainian control. So six months of artillery fights. And there were probably some small groups of Russians trying to get to sneak into the village. And they were uh, apparently killed by Ukrainians. But most of it were artillery fire, artillery fire, artillery fights. And and frankly, we visited the villages in Kiev region, which were on the front line during three weeks, and it it already produced lots of lots of suffering, lots of destruction. Being on the front line during six months, obviously, this is something even even more horrible. So, how it looked like out of three thousand people, only about three hundred have stayed in the village, mostly elderly people, people unable to move. Of course, they needed care, and therefore uh, the mayor was telling us that he was coming uh, practically every day from Chuhuiv on his minivan, bringing some bread, bringing some food, bringing some medicines, bringing some stuff to the military, etc. And uh, he was, again, also a target for uh, for Russian soldiers. Because uh, his minivan was white, by the way, so it was uh, very much visible for, for Russians, which were staying, by the way, only four kilometers away from uh, from this village, Korobochkina. So imagine you are living on the front line and Russians are only at four kilometers from your from your house. It's something yeah, in, somewhere in, in, in another village. So... We also asked him, okay, you're a mayor, starosta of the village. Do you know the destiny of other villages which were occupied, which were very, very, very close? Uh, did the starosta cooperate with the Russians, collaborate with the Russians? And he's replied that mostly no. So he knows only one case. It was uh, the head of the big Hromada, which, uh, which actually integrated all these villages. Uh, and he doesn't know where this person is. But uh, most of the starostas didn't want to collaborate with the Russians. Some of them were put into what what is called pidval, meaning the underground prison where people are tortured, where people are beaten, 
and one of the stars uh, spent two months in such underground, such pitval. Um, so most often Russians needed to find somebody else. Russians needed to find somebody else to perform the functions of the head of, of the village. So it also shows, uh, if we if you look at the uh, at the occupied territories, it, it also shows. Uh, of course, collaborators are everywhere, but whether they are on the top management, top governance of the villages or hromadas, and uh, according to what we see, rather not, rather with, not. with some uh, exceptions. Yeah. And also, what does it mean to be on the front line for six months? It means that you, you don't have electricity. This electricity disappeared by the end of the march, and then they, they no water, for sure. And in April or May, the Russians cut off the gas because of all these shellings. And as for now, 70% of houses are damaged by this shelling and 10% of houses are completely destroyed. So in a way, Karobochkina suffered really a lot. But in comparison to what we'll tell you later in this podcast about some other villages, so they are they were lucky enough because there are also villages where you have really 100% of the destruction, I mean, total destruction of the houses. So in a way, Karabachkina was, um, and after the war, they were, uh, at, uh, we were speaking to him two months after the liberation, right? And there were already 600 people. And um, Alexander was talking about that they were, they are already restoring electricity, partly, and they will uh, they will repair some more lines in coming weeks, so people will, will come back and function. It will depend directly on the fact that if there is electricity or not. And what they were also doing is a lot of houses are partly destroyed in a way that they have no roof, for example, but inside it could be repaired. So they were trying to cover to cover these roofs with some artificial materials just to just for them to preserve these uh, semi-ruined uh, houses during the winter because if rain comes you know snow it will damage even more these houses so where they were able to repair to, to just to cover to preserve a number of houses like that in Karobochkina and this is important because it means that people will would be probably be back and they will be trying to, to do some restoration, maybe with state aid or with, with some international organizations aid, uh, or by the way, school. Um, Alexander was talking about, about, about the school because school is quite close to, to the city center and it's also partially damaged, but they are already thinking about uh, putting a Starlink, uh, in the school for pupils kids to be able to connect to the internet because there is no internet uh, with Starlink they will be able to have their classes online which is also important for people when they take decision if they come or not Right and we visited one of these houses completely destroyed uh, and uh, who is living in this house right now it's a very old woman called Nina and the villagers call, call her Baba Nina which means old lady Nina old Nina, grandma, and uh, we see her house, which is completely burnt down. So there are only uh, walls are built with the white brick, which are there. And uh, she's uh, 82 years old, and uh, she's quite an old lady who is, you know, walking, not not really straight walking, right? 
she helps her herself with a big uh, big uh, stick and we talked to her and uh, people from the village told her that look when when the shell went into her house and it was burning and and people thought okay she she probably was burnt alive and she died and some somehow they have seen that she's walking away from this house uh this uh, very old lady so she was she was actually saved she's now living in the summer kitchen which is n- totally not not a place to live during winter even in the summer kitchen the roof uh, is broken is damaged so the volunteers came to help with the roof to to put the plastic windows we weren't inside but basically we were during the time when the snow uh, started melting and the whole village was like a a combination of of water of ice of rest of the snow everything is is wet indeed you can it can be very easy have uh, wet feet uh, uh going uh on this on this water and the the, the thing is that she actually sh- speaks russian she was serving in the church aligned with russian orthodox church um she speaks russian not in the way as people in kharkiv speak russian i would say that this is much more a russian speak a russian accent so we di- we distinguish between different ways of speaking russian and the russian spoken in kharkiv for example is very very different from the russian spoken in russia itself well very very different i would say somewhat different in terms of accent etc so she is supposedly a person russians came to protect and they destroyed her house completely making her life very very difficult right now yes and a very desolating just image to see this old lady 82 years old she's alone and her house is is destroyed and yes indeed uh, jo- um, volunteers or city mayor they can do they can provide some help but they are unable at that very moment to reconstruct her house by the way we ask her about her family she has a daughter who lives in Kharkiv in the city of Kharkiv she's around 60 years old And our logical question was to ask when why don't you go to Kharkiv to spend this at least this winter with your daughter it would be much more comf- comfortable but her response surprised me very much she told me but i have look i have four dogs she inherited as i said inherited these dogs from her father or even grand grandfather from her, from her father the dogs just a normal village dogs living in this guy in the in the in the yard and cats and she says i i'm unable to leave them here because i'm sure they will be they will die out out of hunger during hunger during during the winter so i'm staying here for these living creatures and i'll i'll try to survive during through this winter with them with my cats with my dogs and even with my goat because there were some people who brought her goat after this big explosion a big fire in her house so now she has some milk out of this goat but she also has to feed this goat and so in a way i would say there is of respect for life in such people and sometimes we are embarrassed by the responses we get from people when we ask 
But why don't you try to go somewhere uh, to a family? And sometimes we see people in a really dramatic circumstances and conditions. And we ask, but why don't you join your children or your grandchildren somewhere in the, the occupied or not occupied territories? Why are you staying here? And the response is quite a lot linked to to animals. And remember when in Bucha and Erpin people were trying to, in Kiev, people were trying to evacuate and they were bringing uh, all their domestic animals and pets like cats and dogs with them and even abroad we know that a lot of people were traveling abroad they were taking their cats with them because they were unable to to leave them here and uh, I think this is something very typical for Ukrainian uh, mentality if we can call it so just to take care of animals and don't leave them die when, while you are absent yeah and uh, it's of course very dramatic and important to talk to people who decided to stay under shelling and most often these people are telling us that look this is our land this is our house i don't want to live anywhere so this is the reality let's talk about even more horrible things more horrible places uh, and these are the villages that we have seen uh, on the road between izum and uh, slovyansk so for those of you who are listening to our podcast, you can uh, you can find our podcast about Izum. You can find our podcast about this Izum Musgraves. And uh, on our YouTube of Ukraine World, you can find a short movie that we made about Izum. It's about 80 minutes long and it's very, very touchy, I think. Very, very, very sad, but at the same time, very real. Uh, but what's ha happening behind Izum? So Russians have taken Izum, which is a, an important hub city, an important regional uh, kind of a center, uh, on I think on 1st April, 1st of April. So they were heavily, heavily bombing it in March. And uh, by going through Izum, you can see multi-story buildings um, in the same way that you see in Borodyanka, for example, which were actually bombed either with rockets or with aviation strikes. And this is just a horrible, horrible vision. So really imagine a, a big multi-story building in which one-third of it just collapsed. And, and let's also remind our audience that uh, close to Izum there is a village of Kapitolivka and we already told you the story of Volodymyr Vakulenko, Ukrainian writer, who lived there and who was captured by Russian soldiers um, in uh, late March 2022. Uh, he was captured twice. In a way, he was captured with his son and then released and then recaptured and his family, his mother and his stepfather were without any use of, of him for many, many, many many months and just a couple of weeks ago they were able finally they were DNA tests and they were able to identify that unfortunately one of the bodies found in this Izum mass grave in the Izum forest belonged to Volodymyr Vakulenka. So the he was buried in Kharkiv uh, last Tuesday and we were able to visit his tomb in Kharkiv uh, two days ago. So uh, what happened between uh, Izum and Slovyansk? Ukrainians were controlling Slovyansk. So Slovyansk was not occupied during this big war. Ukrainians were and, and are controlling Bakhmut. And there is a straight road from Izum to Slovyansk. And there are villages on this road. So we can imagine how many fights there were in these villages. And we went to the villages which are called uh, Kamyanka, which is called uh, Dolina. 
And here you see really the apocalyptic landscape. Uh, because you can say, okay, this village is damaged, some of the houses are damaged, uh, in, 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 in Korobochkina, 70% of houses are damaged. That means that probably one shell went through the roof, there is a hole in the roof, the windows are broken, but generally the house is there. In Kamyanka, there is no, not a single house. I think there are 70 or 80 houses in, 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 in the village. No single house which is which is there. What we know, we know that there were one thousand seven uh, hundreds of the population of uh, this Kamenka before the war. So we can imagine a small size, mostly. So it's it, it's twice less size as if compared to Karobochkina, for example. It's a small village, really tiny village. And uh, and when you travel, this is really apocalyptic, as you said. The road itself is apocalyptic because when you drive, you see, uh, by the way, you see the signs that it is mined on both sides of the road all the way through, so you cannot stop anywhere. You see until now, so this uh, area was liberated back in September, so two months later, you still see a lot of cars, a lot of tanks and all kind of uh, military vehicles on the uh, side of the road they are burnt or they are destroyed and they are still there. You also can see um, a sign, for example, stating that uh, two people, road workers, uh, exploded on a mine in October. So the, what they were doing, they were repairing the road in one in, in one place So and they, there was a mine, so they, both of them were 20-something years old, so quite young people. So a clear sign that this is dangerous to drive here and this is dangerous to get off the road. And when you drive into the village, you see really no single normal house. So you just see ruins, ruins of shops, ruins of houses, ruins of ag agricultural vehicles, skeletons of cows still present on the road. So nobody cares that they're there. We can imagine there were cows that were maybe wandering in the village and there were Russian uh, artillery fire or we don't know exactly how these cows died, but this is, looks like that. And there's no, it, it seems like there is no living creature inside the village, but this is not true. This is not true that because suddenly you see a man riding his bicycle. Suddenly you see another man repairing or trying to do something on his courtyard. So we addressed the second man who is called Serhi. And again, he was very, very open uh, to us. He invited us to, to, to his place. We have seen his mother. Uh, so they do have a small house of two rooms in which you can live. There is a oven so they can, uh, they can have heating with wood. For example, and there are some volunteers who are coming, who are bringing some lighters, who are bringing some, some things. But of course, no electricity, no water. We ask him where you get water. He says he says uh, we're using the rainwater. Probably they will. Uh, they are also using the water from snow. Unfortunately, there is. Um, they they used to take water from the underground, but you need electricity also to to get this water to pump it. It's water. If you don't ha have electricity, you have actually nothing. So they barely need uh, everything which is electric. But 
Uh, but let's explain maybe how come so this village is in this condition. According to the story told by this Sergei, it was it happened in 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 March. So Russians they they took Izum and then they were advancing uh, through this road. They were maybe trying to approach Slovyansk, and so they tr- they started to shell heavily the village really heavily and there were a lot of explosions and a lot of fire and at that very moment um, most of inhabitants um, dwellers of this village they left the village like Sergei and his mother did they they just moved 10 kilometers back to a different village maybe somewhere to relatives and uh, they so at that moment when they were leaving the village was partly destroyed but not not all the all the things were destroyed so russians occupied uh kamenka and then they occupied all other villages and in- including these villages that uh Sergei and his mother were staying and then it was an evacuation process organized by russians so people who were able to drive all by themselves by their own car uh, were able to travel to Izum, but others were uh, were evacuated, as uh, Russians told that, evacuated to their own villages. So in that way, back in May, uh, Sergei and his mother were back to the village, already completely destroyed, already without any kind of electricity, water, heating. No, they needed no heating in May. But so they were back in this small uh, house close to the principal house because their own house is destroyed, partly destroyed. So they live in a smaller one. And they were able, and they were still under Russian occupation. So when they came, they were able to see the signs of Russian presence everywhere. For example, uh, a couple of Russians were living in his garage so they uh and they were as old lady this old lady the mother of Sergil told that they were trying to get anything valuable from the house uh they were making a lot of uh, mess everywhere uh and then so they had to leave may june july august and part of september under russian occupation yeah, and the, the 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 strange thing is that really Russians, when when they we see it everywhere, every every villager that we met in Kiev Oblast in Kharkiv Oblast is telling us telling us the same that they uh, when Russians take the places like houses of of the village dwellers when they leave they leave behind them a, a chaos and deliberate, deliberately they they are destroying things. For example, they they took the pillows of uh, this grandma and just uh, you know mixed it with dirt or something else, or something like that. Uh, another village dweller from this Kamenka told us that when Russians were leaving, they just uh, uh, sent a grenade to his car, and uh, there was nobody in the car, but the car exploded. So he has no car right now. This said he also, we have seen two cars on his courtyard. One is a, a, a passenger car, another is, is a truck. And uh, old Soviet cars. And uh, it seems that they are unable to move, right? Uh, he was also telling us that they were uh, like spoiling the electric, electric equipment and cutting the, how you say it, cutting the cables of uh, of stoves or of uh, or some other electric equipment in the house. Why they're doing this? I mean, nobody knows. They they really 
the impression that we have is that they really want to leave nothingness, destruction, barbarism behind themselves. Is it a sign of of hatred? A sign of like I will do the worst things I can do for you, even even after I leave. Well, this is this is a, the psychology of Russian soldiers that we need to think about. We need to reflect upon. And it's not because Putin told them told them so, or even the the commanders told them so. They okay. just want to, you know, cut cables from your uh, electric stove. That's it. And the important detail about refrigerator: these other men from uh, the same village told that neighbor, in fact, neighbor of uh, Sergei and uh, his mother told her that his refrigerator. He found his refrigerator in a very strange condition because, on one hand, it it looks like looked like as if uh, Russians have taken some some technical some chips from 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 the behind, and at the same time they put this refrigerator in the center of this courtyard. And so it was a complete mess. So they were trying, as they were doing with uh, with with, uh, with uh, washing machines, they were trying to to use some details from these equipment, from washing machines and from refrigerators, to be used, reused maybe in 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 their military purposes. But they were leaving all that stuff in a, in a very messy uh, way afterwards. So when you come back, just imagine you you find your house where Russians lived or close to which your Russians lived, and they are. They were using your things. They were everything is dirty. Everything is cut or destroyed, and you just have no explanation, and you have nobody to ask these questions. Why exactly you were doing so? Because you could have lived even if you need this house, you could have lived in this house and be, but be use it in a proper way, and use instead of destroying everything. But what they were doing, in fact, they were destroying. Yeah, why sending a grenade to a civilian car? Uh, Soviet age civilian car produced in 1970s uh, and just cut any possibility for this old civilian person, for example, right now to go to Izum, to go to the city and buy some food. Uh, can you can you understand that? Except from this psychology of sadomasochism and this cult of violence that we described for many many. On numerous occasions on our podcast, I I cannot really explain it. And let's talk about the the the, the most real danger now in the village. So, uh, people they ha- don't have any electricity, but they still still can uh, can heat their houses with wood. But to do so, they need wood. So, what they do, what they were trying to do from the very beginning, they were trying to collect collect wood somewhere in the forest or somewhere in the in the closest houses. There were a lot of wooden details, so you can use it. But there were already two neighbors of this. He and his mother, who exploded on the mines. So one of them had an operation. He was they cut his leg off just for the fact that he was she would just explode. It was a mine, and it's extremely dangerous now to walk through this village. They called many times to this national service, uh, the mining service, but it's clear, clearly enough they are quite busy now because they were doing the mining roads main roads and they just putting them in line saying saying that look we'll come but we'll come later and at that very moment two months after the deoccupation there was still a lot of mines inside this village and extremely dangerous for people living inside there are 10 people living in this village where 1700 people lived before the war they cannot move freely inside the village so um, they dramatically need wood just to to hit for hit for, for, for to hit their houses. 
Yes, and these mines are most probably, these are mines called Lipyastok in Russian, which is, means a, a little uh, leaf, like leaf from the tree or leaf from a flower. And they look like very little plastic things. Uh, usually green color. So actually, if if they're if they're in the grass, for example, and and there is still green grass in, in these villages, uh, you can if you if you go from a road, uh, for example, if if you want to enter the the courtyard of a destroyed house because there are lots of wooden things, uh, things from the wood from this house, and you want just to take it to, you know, to uh, to get some heating. You have all the risks to step on this uh, plastic, little plastic lipstick, little plastic uh, bomb. It will not kill you, but uh, most probably it will. Um, it will uh, injure you if it severely injure you, and most probably you will be without a fit afterwards. So you you will you know have. I don't know, four, four or five months of recovery, then you will need to look for prothesis or something like this. So, and um, as Serhi told us, uh, at least two of his villagemen already did that, unfortunately. There are probably 10 people, 15 people left in the village. They really feel abandoned because, I mean, we can understand also the the demining service. You're right that they are, and we have we have seen them, they are actually demining roads. And unfortunately for them, it's also a highly risky work. We know the some people... Uh, either from the emergency service or the volunteers who went to the army, who also just step on uh, this little lipstick, and that's it. That's uh, for the rest of your life. Will you will not uh, your you will not have your feet. So this is the reality, and and um, these people really need help. At least they need uh, the help from the volunteers just to bring them a, a truck of wood that will help them to. Um, you know, to uh, to cope with it. So, we will we will be thinking of making a, a volunteer trip to this region in January, and um, uh, and if you want to contribute to to this, we'll probably bring them uh, generators and and wood. You can support us on uh, Patreon, patreoncom world or you can support us on uh, PayPal, uh, Ukraine dot resisting. Uh, gmail.com ukraine.resisting gmail.com so this is the reality of of these villages we went through uh, another village which is called dolina and uh, we just filmed these houses it seems even 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 worse one very also something that 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 struck us is the 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 the, uh, the forest so the, the the collection of trees on the both sides of the road with also suffered heavily from these fights, and you do have the impression like they 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 really work. They they are really kind of a symbol of of these fights with their uh, with the branches cut. You know the dry trees. You know the witness of this fight. There is something humane in them, as as if they are uh, they are witnesses of this suffering of this immense immense suffering. So this is the reality of uh, of the things that we have watched, um, and um, yeah, unfortunately, many many people in the in the villages in Ukraine are, are living in the in these conditions. And even if the village is destroyed, they 
keep on living there and that's probably the most the most tragic and the most uh, incredible way so this was a podcast explaining ukraine by ukraine world uh, a website in english about ukraine as you see we try to travel when we can to the places we can we always bring something this time we brought a, a, a big car for our def- defenders, basically for people who are also de- doing the medical work on the front line near Slovyansk, uh, evacuating the, the wounded. But uh, civilians also need uh, a lot of support. So you can join this support by helping us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld or on paypal ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. Uh, my co-host is Tetyana Harkova. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine. Tetyana Harkova works for Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.